Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike and joining me in today's episode are Emmett Savage and Amory Kingsman from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Before we get into today's show, I just want to give a word to our quick friends and sponsors at Vodafone Business. You know, I used to think of Vodafone Business as only a reliable provider for my mobile and broadband needs, but they're really stepping up to help Irish businesses grow and flourish in an increasingly digital world. They now offer a whole array of digital apps from productivity tools and security solutions to IT support and even website builders. More recently, Vodafone has launched their VHub digital advisory service. With this new service, Irish businesses of all sizes can get free, one-to-one digital support and advice tailored to their business by simply booking a call with one of the VHub digital experts on the Vodafone business website. Search Vodafone VHub for more information. Emmett, Emery, welcome to another episode of Stock Club. It's good to have you here. Uh, Emmett, you asked me last week what were, my, what were my, some of my favorite conspiracy theories. Well, I've got a new one. Uh, the Huang Zhao Zhu in China. Have you seen this? <laughs> the bear? The bear the that's bear. not a bear. They had to come out and uh, refute claims that their sun bears are not just humans dressed in costume. Yeah, I had a look at the video and I can see why one would think it's not really a bear and that it's actually a person dressed as a bear. And I, I read that the, the the zoo operator said there's no way a person could stand in a bear outfit in that temperature, which I thought was a, an unusual way of addressing the problem. Yeah, it, it feels like it wasn't the right excuse to make, you know? <laughs> no, and I think that, you know, his bum, as we'd say in Ireland, his backside uh, looked a bit human. So it was kind of a bit too crinkly to be a bear's bum. I thought bears have a bigger bum than that. Yeah, the the, ta- the pants needed to be tailored if they were going to try and pull that off. It was a bit <laughs> saggy at the back, yeah. But I, I wonder, because you know how like bears like lose and gain a lot of weight rapidly throughout the year for hibernation? Like, is that, is yeah. it, are we not used to seeing post-hibernation bears? Maybe. I'm, I'm not used to seeing it, that's for sure. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> this, this could be a new revenue line for InMode. Uh, Emmett, yes, to get exactly. rid of loose skin on bears as well as humans. Yeah, well, as only when the bear sat down in the video that you circulated just before the podcast um, from the Guardian, I I noticed that when the bear sat down, it was a kind of bearish sit down. I didn't think <laughs> it looked like a human sit down. Yeah, <laughs> big issues, Mike. Really big issues. Really Mike. big issues. If anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, please go Google fake bears in China Zoo because it is bizarre. But you know what, Emmett? That could be Daniel Day-Lewis in that bear suit. That could be someone really committed to the bear suit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When you see an A-lister actor at work, you really, they, they'd pull off a bear, no problem. They put Leo DiCaprio in a bear suit. He's a bear. Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis would be a bear. <laughs> they already put him in a bear suit. That was called The Revenant. Oh, yeah, that's true. Good point. Yep. There you go. QED. That's where he's gone in the Screen and Actors Guild strike. He's gone over to China to do bears. <laughs> he's short on cash he needs to raise some money <laughs> okay um all right let's get into the show so emmett uh sofi reported a bit of a blockbuster report this week uh, the stock popped about 20 percent on monday so before we talk about the earnings report can you give our listeners a quick reminder of what the business does yeah for sure so sofi which is short for social finance was founded in 2011 by four guys with suspiciously irish names uh, like Irish guys don't usually go to Stanford and start a, a, a neobank. Uh, Mike Hagney, Dan uh, Macklin, James Finnegan and Ian Brady, who were four students, as I said, that met in Stanford Graduate School of Business. And the four of them had hoped that SoFi 
could provide more affordable options for those taking on debt to fund their education specifically. And their inaugural loan program was a pilot at Stanford where 40 alumni loaned about $2 million to 100 students. So that's about 20 grand per student. And clearly that was a success because SoFi quickly expanded far beyond student loans. And in 2012, it became the first company to refinance, refinance federal and private student loans. And then they began offering personal loans and mortgages. And then just only a couple of years later in 2015, it became the first US-based fintech company to receive one billion funding round, which is not too bad for a company that started uh, just four years earlier with four people and a dream. Now, next thing you know, and there's things out there like the SoFi Stadium, which was built at a cost of five and a half billion dollars, which is the home stadium for, I think, the Rams and the LA Chargers. Um, but needless to say, they don't own it. Uh, SoFi don't own the SoFi Stadium. It's actually constructed as a joint venture between uh, Turner Construction and, and another party, I can't remember, and it's state of, the, uh, state of the art. But their name is over the door. So really, you know, this is a huge brand piece for them. But I think one of the best things that SoFi did in their very short history was recruit a guy called Anthony Noto, who is the CEO. Uh, they took him on in February 2018. And prior to that, as I mentioned in a prior episode of, of uh, Stock Club, he was the chief operations officer and also the chief financial officer at Twitter. And before that, he was in top roles at Goldman Sachs and the National Football League. And so he's some operator. And, and I'm going to come back to that point, I'm sure, as we uh, roll out our conversation here, Mike. But what's notable, perhaps, is that rather than SoFi IPOing in January 2011, it's spacked with one of Social Capital's vehicles. And uh, that's Chamath for those who were following and investing at that time. Uh, and while I have a view of those vehicles and their promoter, it has to be said that it was, is a quality company. And it's definitely, to me, a proof point that not all SPACs were quote-unquote bad. On the contrary, just like a gold rush where there's a handful of gold for every, I don't know, ton of sand and, and dirt, this is definitely a quality business in my opinion, and, and it is in the handful of gold that came out of the SPAC gold rush of, of a year and a half ago. Okay, so what exactly does SoFi sell? I, uh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. Well, they do everything. Like when you look at their webpage, it's a vast ocean of banking and financial products that range from personal loans and, and credit score tools and private student loans and student loan refinancing and stock investment tools uh, with a stockbroker uh, built into the back end and they do mortgage and credit cards and insurance and travel. I mean, seriously, anything that entails putting your money away into a vehicle, saving it or borrowing money or getting insurance, they seem to have it wrapped up. But what I found and what I find very interesting about the business at the moment is the ratio of financial services to lending products. Now, just to remind our listeners, a lending product is a mortgage. If you have a mortgage, it is a product. So it's counted as one. And over the last couple of years, um, from Q2 21 to Q2 2023, so literally over the last two years, the ratio of financial services to products is has grown from 2.7x to 4.5x 
to 5.3x. So they have pretty much double the ratio of, of products that they can offer, which means that they can cross-sell to an increasing number of members. So what SoFi is doing, it's onboarding new uh, customers, members, whatever you want to call it, at an incredible clip, but it has more products to cross-sell to more people. And that's something that's very complex, but if done right, it's it's absolutely dynamite. This is dynamite stuff. Mm, that, that kind of ecosystem business model where yeah. once you get them in the door, you can offer them so much more and it kind of upgrades, we'll say, as as along with the customer's life cycle. For sure. You have yeah. the relationship. The paperwork is done. Absolutely. Okay, let's get into the earnings report. What got investors so excited? Right. So here we are, but a few years on from when they founded the business and, and they announced their earnings on Monday morning before the stock market opened and their gap revenue was just $500 million, $498 million. Their gap uh, was a half a billion, up 37% on the same period a year ago. And then uh, their adjusted net revenue, which is, I guess, the next door neighbor of your gap revenue, was $489 million. So let's just say revenue was up 37% year on year to about a half a billion. They had record uh, EBITDA of $77 million, which is up 278% year over year. And member ads, as I said, whether you call them a customer, a member, whatever they call it, members, um, they, uh, their number of member ads uh, exceeded 584,000. So they added a, a half, well over a half million, nearly 600,000 people, um, which year over year means they are now at 6.2 million members. So this gives a lot of customers. And then, as I said, the new product ads of 847,000. Um, I mean, every number, every single number and every single trend on the deck looks like a xylophone when you look at the pillars. It just is everything that's good is growing. And in the words of uh, Brad Freeman, who writes a really nice weekly email, to quote Brad, he said, demand is rocking, margins are soaring, members are spiking, credit metrics are dynamite, and the tech segment's acceleration is coming. Anthony Noto is a leader who I would run through a brick wall for. There is nothing to pick at in this report, only a smile to put on our faces, as I know, I rightfully defended the babe, uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And he goes on, which I thought was very nicely put. But if I can come back to this guy, CEO and uh, Noto, who um, I, I just don't think I recall, I can barely recall a CEO being so outwardly bullish as this guy was uh, yesterday, as it was for us for recording this on Tuesday. Um, I watched him on television and I read the press i watched a, a live stream of the guy i read his tweets and and i quote anthony noto he says no company has greater aspirations than we do nobody is further along than we are and my job is to make sure we execute every second of every hour of every day and i thought that was really like i mean that's what i mean by it was hyper bullish i turned on the tv um last evening he was on bloomberg and he said um 
he, again, he reiterated the message. The same message was being hammered down for every channel. And he said, and I quote, I don't think anyone has bigger aspirations than we do on SoFi. You go and look at Twitter and he's tweeted, he goes, when I joined SoFi in February 2018, every fintech company said they wanted to be a one-stop shop. Now, five and a half years later, only SoFi has done it. Even the industry incumbents still haven't been able to put all of their products on a digital platform and, be and become a one-stop shop. It's not easy to do. It's an incredibly large investment and it's a pretty tall mountain to climb, but we've climbed that mountain and we feel we're on the other side. I don't think anyone has bigger aspirations than we do at Sophia. And as a leader, I'm responsible for making sure we deliver on that every second of every hour of every day. So this message was being hammered down and he went on in uh, his tv interview about how he welcomes competition which I, I suppose is usually the polite thing to say I, I hate competition i wish every one of the competitors to my wall street would go bust but you know it's a nice thing to say oh, well, don't don't wish ill on anyone but he said that and today when we look at sofi it's a 11 billion dollar business um it's still kind of struggling to get to it. Not struggling, struggling to one world. It still isn't on a trailing 12-month basis profitable. But everything is growing, growing, growing. And um, really, this uh, was, I don't want to say vindication of, of, of the SPAC uh, rush, but certainly as SPACs go, when you look at the jewels, as I said, just definitely this is a jewel in the crown of the SPAC brigade. And it's a big business that's going to get way bigger. Mm, for sure. And another thing to just back up Anthony Noto's kind of backing of the business, we'll say, is that mm. he made a number of pretty large insider buys there about six months ago, around the start of the year, I think it was. Yeah, that's for sure. And I was buying it during for Horizon during that period, I recall, thankfully. And um, like I can only think in the last half year of hearing a CEO being even more bullish. And that's actually my next pitch in Horizon. So I'm not here to sell Horizon, but that's just something uh, uh, that I've been very aware of. It seems like it's okay now for CEOs to um, get out there and, and shout about their accomplishments. And, and uh, you're dead right. He was putting his money where his mouth was. Uh, you're right about a half year ago, Mike. He put quite a lot of money in and it was a meaningful percentage of his total net worth. Mm, they'll be sitting pretty right now, looking at the stock mm. chart for year to date. Oh, yeah. Uh, lastly, I just want to touch on an analyst report from Morgan Stanley. So it downgraded the stock claim it should be valued more like a bank nowadays. Do you agree with this sentiment? No, no way. Um, Adelson, who's the Goldman guy, uh, who's behind that Goldman uh, analysis, he joined a whole bunch of other analysts in, in kind of voicing concerns about over-elevated assumptions about its uh, SoFi's ability to benefit from the recent uh, policy developments around student loans, which refers to the Supreme Court striking down uh, the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness plan at the end of June, which I'm sure has political ramifications for Joe Biden, but we're not here to talk about that. But anyway, Goldman gave uh, the company credit for above peer revenue growth and a path of ramping profitability. So they downgraded it on the other side of the mouth, they said we really admired. And like SoFi estimates that about about a uh, $200 billion total addressable market for refinancing once the moratorium and student loan 
payment ends, but Adelson, the guy from Goldman, thinks that the market opportunity is about half that. So do I agree? No, no, not. And I'm going to tell you why. Not because it's not a bank. Like SoFi is a bank, but it's a bank with an incredible lead in its tech stack, which for anyone who has worked in a traditional bank will know is just massive. And if you work in an old world or a traditional bank, you'll know that there is an immense, grueling, uphill battle to develop a small piece of technology. or well, A small piece of technology is tantamount to saying it's a, it's a new process or an old process brought into the modern age. And there's no way you should value SoFi with just as a bank, a bank with a safe in the back. You know, like, it, it certainly is not that. And, I mean, like, SoFi actually sells tech to neobanks with this Galileo business unit, which um, they acquired a couple of years back and, and has been described as the AWS of fintech. So SoFi isn't just a bank. SoFi is selling the stuff that banks use. Banks are using SoFi's tech through their Galileo thing. Um, they sell to, like, just to be specific, like there is SoFi technology. Well, G Galileo, fully owned by SoFi's technology, is powering companies like Chime and Robinhood. Of course, it's powering SoFi itself and, and then a whole load of non-American businesses like uh, Monzo Bank in the UK, Revolut, TransferWise, a wonderful business that you spoke about in the not-too-distant past, Amory, like the uh, uh, charging a fearless pick was it charging a fearless mm -hmm. pick emery it was yeah um like sofi is a force unto itself but it's a force onto other banks too so it has a as a like it's galileo the number of galileo products i saw on the call and i don't have the numbers but it, it dropped a little bit about two quarters ago but it's growing again it's kind of like 125 130 customers um but it had grown 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 dipped and it's growing again so to, it's for goldman um, to kind of say that it, it should, it's now should be valued like a bank for me is just crazy because, it, it, yes, it's a bank, but it's a hell of a lot more. Mm, absolutely. Okay, so that was SoFi, and we're moving around then to the ad industry in general. So we're going to get through a couple of companies here, do a bit of a round of the house. Uh, so let's start with social media. Amory, Snap laid a complete egg it seems yeah. to look like and meta was very strong so we can tell that social media is not one and the same um discuss yeah so uh snapchat last quarter that was q2 brought in 1.07 billion in revenue that was up from last quarter uh but it was a year-over-year -year dip and that's actually the first uh year-over-year -year dip that the company's seen since it went public so that's got to sting a little bit um Basically, Snap's CEO, Evan Spiegel, said that the shift did not reflect the company's ambitions. I think any company would say this. That's not like a super descriptive um, of the issue. But really, the name of the game, as you said at the top here, is advertising and how that looks really different across the social sphere. Um, so in the same quarter, Meta also recently reported they were able to deliver revenue of $32 billion, up 11% compared to a year ago. Um, and that was the largest quarterly growth that they had seen since uh, Q1 of 2021, which is right about the time that Apple rolled out that iOS change that blocked targeted advertising. So that's pretty good. Um, the, really, the revenue growth for Meta, though, is in the advertising game, which they saw the growth within that segment alone grow 12%. Uh, this is pretty significant turnaround from the last kind of two-ish years. And uh, they credit that entirely to an improved use of AI technology that has enabled better ad targeting. Um, 
just a note on that, the Washington Post recently estimated that since the iOS change that Apple introduced, uh, Meta might have lost upwards of $10 billion in revenue um, for that. that. That is crazy to think that you could do that to a competitor. Um, but I think on top of the AI targeting, it is worth discussing the differences here between Snapchat and Meta um, that can explain some of these differences in, uh, in, in ad revenue and, and growth figures. Um, firstly, the way that the platforms operate, obviously Meta controls Instagram, Facebook, and WhatsApp, and those first two are, are much more appropriate for advertising. So uh, probably as ad dollars begin to get freed up here, you know, I think businesses are becoming a little bit less conservative with spend. Um, They're going to probably go to that safest harbor first, and that's likely Instagram or or Facebook, depending on your demographic. Um, Just as a reminder, like Snap is primarily used as a messaging service. There are some other features in there like stories, and I know some publications host like story shows, like I know the Daily Mail does that. Um, But I would say the primary use case for users is communication, and that is a very, very difficult space to advertise within um, without like annoying your your users because it feels like a private space and if you just bust down the door and have you know a teeth whitening at it you, you feel violated in some ways um which interestingly, not to toot my own horn, was a prediction that I made like a year and a half ago on a in an article um, that I wrote up for us, which maybe we'll we'll repost and um, we'll put in the notes for the show, just a little bit of self promotion there. Um, but with that in mind, it, it makes Snap more similar to WhatsApp in that it's hard to monetize. I mean, as we have discussed in the past, WhatsApp is like this world-renowned brand that Meta controls, and yet it represents less than one percent of revenue. So you know, Snapchat is effectively imitating um, that aspect of, of this Meta asset, um, and. And that, interestingly, was a view that was also um, reflected by Peter Chun, who's a, the global head of platform at VaynerMedia, which is like a huge ad agency that helps any kind of business place ads within the, the um, digital space. And he said the challenge for Snapchat is that it's one of the most public but yet private platforms because the use case of the platform is heavily focused on direct messages. The challenge that Snap has is that a lot of their ads appear in their user stories, which in a lot of ways may not be visible to the brand. So, you know, it, it's this kind of, again, the use case is so private and these public aspects aren't really succeeding and it makes it more difficult to place ads. Um, I also read up to see kind of what other ad agencies were saying about Snap and they reflected the fact that Snap was a really great place to advertise about five years ago but that was prior to TikTok's dominance and that was maybe back in kind of Instagram's heyday and the reason it was such a great place to advertise was because it was dirt cheap to do so. Apparently, when ads launched on Snap, they were incredibly inexpensive. And so it meant it was really easy for anyone looking to buy ads to get a return on investment. Because if you're only spending a couple bucks an ad, you probably, you know, you'd very easily throw 10% of your ad budget there just to see what it does. That is no longer the case because like many small companies, Snapchat is being pushed by investors to pursue profitability. And so they've raised the prices of ads. And it's now, you know, much more difficult probably for companies to justify that spend. And then I would say the final note here, is really the differences in demographics. Snap and Meta are on just absolutely completely different planets there. Um, Interestingly, while revenue is trending down for Snapchat, its daily active users was up in Q2, and they're up 14% year over year, and they're just about approaching 400 million. Um, Of course, Meta is like a behemoth. Facebook alone has over 2 billion users, and that was up ever so slightly from the quarter before, so that was impressive to see. But the ages and the geographic spread is really, really different. So um, I actually learned this quarter that 90% of 30 13 to 24-year-old Americans are on Snapchat, and they open the app on average 40 times per day. That is an 40. insane... 40, 40 yeah. 4-0. Wow. That's insane. Um, 
So there obviously is an opportunity there if you're trying to reach that demographic, but teens are not the best when it comes to spending. They tend not to have all that much money. Um, And as they've grown up online, I do think we're going to have a cultural transition here at some point within the next 10 years where ad agencies are going to have to have the discussion that a lot of teens are pretty immune to online advertisement. They know it just kind of comes with the territory, so they've gotten really good at tuning it out. Um, So I do think effectiveness of ads is going to drop in the coming decades. Um, Whereas you compare that to Meta, which has really strong representation across kind of demographics all over the world and particularly when it comes to Facebook you know you have a lot more older people using the site and they are easier to advertise to they're probably also a more of an ideal demographic for a number of of kind of traditional blue chip brands so um yeah they're just they're kind of weak in all these different facets and um that's going to raise some issues all that being said snapchat has said that they are working to improve its ad platform across three key areas observability engagement um as well as enhanced ad ranking and relevance to increase conversion rates um and that has kind of come hand in hand with a few additions to their team. They picked up Microsoft executive Rob Wilk and former Google ad executive Darshan Katnak, who are now in basically in charge of this sector and are trying to help Snapchat achieve greater revenue growth. Okay, I've got a mad stat for you here. So Snapchat's last four earnings reports, so Q2 of 2022 up to Q2 of 2023, the stock has fallen at least double digits each time the day after so anywhere between 10 and 28 percent and yet somehow the stock is almost up around 20 percent this year yeah yeah so i don't know what's going on over there i imagine it's a kind of uh iterating cycle where people look at snapchat the stock is down they have all this user base uh and engagement but then the numbers come the numbers come out and we see that it's just not monetizing them effectively do you use snapchat emory um, yeah, I use it some, I have like a lot of like Snapchat group chats, but again, I'm only using it for communication and it's like very much a secondary form of communication. Like I have regular text group chats with my friends and then like you use Snapchat when like you want to send a funny photo of a bird, you know, it's like the less urgent mm-hmm. communication mm-hmm. style. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What about you, Mike? Are you snapping? No, I'm not snapping anymore. But you, I guess, Anne-Marie, you've explained uh, very succinctly there the use case because I wondered why would you use Snapchat if you use Messenger and WhatsApp and mm. you know text message or whatever else you use and it's I suppose I have observed in other people that there seems to be a trivial a far more trivial nature to communications yeah. carried through Snapchat you wouldn't, I don't think Definitely. you'd want to organize a holiday in there like no no <laughs> Jesus, that would be a nightmare. Um, yeah, but the the 20% year over year thing, it is interesting. I would say that that's probably more a reflection of like the broader market sell off that we saw at the beginning of the year and just the kind of in, little bits of recovery that we've seen, you know, a rising tide will lift all boats type of mentality. Um, just as a comparison, like Meta is up 155% yeah. since this time last year, like it's pretty significant. But you know, if you want to compare things, Pinterest is probably more in Snap's neighborhood in terms of market cap sitting in at about tw- 19 to 20 billion and users they both are coming in at about 400 million as of right now and snap and uh, snap and pinterest are both sitting at up about 20 to 25 percent this year um actually interestingly pinterest is reporting earnings as we speak right now but kind of the consensus i've seen across the market is that they're expecting a pretty nominal revenue growth in about five to six percent um that being said i would consider pinterest to be an easier place to integrate advertisement compared to snapchat because it's not a private dm service um it also has a, a better demographic in terms of spending pinterest is just populated with women in their 20s 30s and 40s who are eagerly looking for stylish benches you know that's a pretty easy yeah. way to convert someone um 
So while, you know, these kind of smaller social media stocks are up, I don't really consider this an indication of anything. Really, it seems ad spending continues to be conservative. It's recovering a little bit. Um, But I think the main thing we're seeing is a lot of advertisers are looking for improved performance. And as Meta discussed in their call, they are using AI to bring in targeted elements. They are only going to improve that in the coming quarters. Whereas, you know, Pinterest and Snapchat are significantly smaller teams. They have significantly limited budgets. You know, I cannot imagine that Pinterest has hundreds of people stashed away somewhere in an R&D department who are eagerly developing AI for ad targeting. I just don't really see that happening. Um, So as of right now, I guess if you're looking for a social media ad stock, I guess the place right now is Meta. Um, But as we've talked about over the last year, there are a number of other kind of ongoing issues within the company. So it's, it's difficult to say, you know, is this the short-term bump before those more long-term issues take over. You know, a lot of teenagers are not using their traditional products like Instagram um, and Facebook. I continue to think that they have an inability to launch new products. I know we've been talking about threads, but both the Washington Post and the New York Times had articles that came out this week discussing the fact that user daily active users have essentially fallen off a cliff since its initial introduction. And then, of course, they're pouring tens of billions of dollars into the metaverse and VR and and all that stuff. So um, I continue to sit on the bench with uh, Meta, but when it comes to ads, they they seem to be the the bright spot right now. Okay. Moving from social media then to connected TV. So Roku is soaring after posting better than expected numbers last week. Uh, What's got investors Mm -hmm. excited over there? Yeah, so they reported net revenue of $847 million, which is up 11% year over year on a net loss of $107 million, uh, which is a pretty solid improvement from a year before. Pretty much all of this revenue growth was down to platform revenue, which includes ad sales, revenue from distribution deals, and then the over their over-the-top streaming service, the Roku channel, which has like ridiculous movies and TV shows on it. But also they sell a lot of ads in that space as well. Um, that brought in $744 million, which as you can see, that's the vast majority of the company's revenue. Um, but this, I think, all kind of comes down to a shift in consumer behavior. Uh, consumer research from last year found that a whopping 87% of uh, US TV households have at least one internet-connected internet connected TV device, up from 80% in 2020. And interestingly, 46% of adults in these households are watching video via connected TV daily. So it really is a complete replacement of, of traditional analog TV. Uh, connected TV continues also to dominate the kind of video advertising world, generating 51% of advertising video impressions, up from 40% this time last year. Um, and that has meant that mobile and desktop have each seen their share of that market drop. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not this issue of, oh, spending is increasing across the board in advertising. No, spending is rotating and it's rotating into connected TV, which is great for Roku, but then maybe more importantly or more favorably, the trade desk, which, you know, Mike, you've spoken about a number of times. Um, overall, it's spending in this segment is pretty much like in kind of overall TV spending is flat year over year. Um, and actually traditional TV saw its ad spend drop 9.4%. So it really is not the place to be. We actually discussed that like two weeks ago in terms of Disney. Um, that being said, Roku was pretty hesitant on their call about saying that this is a trend that's going to continue for the next couple of quarters, simply because a lot of their ad spending comes from streamers or networks or studios uh, trying to advertise content, trying to push people towards their platform. And because of the strikes right now, new content releases are going to be slow for the kind of foreseeable next couple of quarters at least. So it was kind of a long-term endorsement of a strategy that Roku has been talking about really since about 2018 and 2019. It was a great endorsement also for the trade desk. Um, But maybe just keep an eye on it probably for the next two to three quarters until we see the rider strike and the SAG strike uh, hopefully come to an end. 
yeah there's an awful lot still up in the air when it comes to all the streaming industries and the studios in general yeah. really oh yeah um Okay, last but certainly not least, we have the big kahuna burger, Google. Uh, it added as much yeah. as 8% after last week's call. And when your company valued at $1.7 trillion, that's some serious that's moves. Nice. Uh, yep. why, why the big jump? Um, unfortunately for our thematic planning here, um, it's Google surprise beat was really not down to advertisement, unfortunately, <laughs> sad for us. Um, but yeah, as you said, a revenue rose 7% to $74.6 billion. That is insane. Uh, and Google's ad revenue rose 3.3% to $58 billion, up from $56 billion last year. Uh, YouTube ads came in just above what analysts expected, bringing in $7.67 billion. Um, that being said, YouTube continues to face a lot of competition in the ad space because of TikTok, you know, short-form videos taking over. Um, so that'll still be a place to watch. Um, we have also heard about a few AI features coming to Google, just kind of reflecting what Meta has been doing, but a lot of these AI features as of right now seem to be focused in the production side, helping you pick out content, that type of thing. We've heard less about targeting, um, and those features only went live in May. So that's only been a couple of months. I would assume that Google is working on targeting, um, but it's unclear where that is in comparison to Meta right now. Um, it definitely will be happening, though, because Google Chrome is phasing out cookies next year. So I assume they have to have something in the work. So we'll keep an eye on that. Um, Google search and other revenue rose to $42.63 billion, up slightly from last year. Of course, this is kind of the hotly contested segment because everyone is worried that Bing is about to take over and OpenAI and ChatGPT and all that. Um, as of right now, Google's kind of market share is steady. They haven't lost anything yet. So um, nothing to report there. I suppose it's just kind of a long-term concern that people are keeping an eye on. Um, I know people have been disappointed with Bard. Uh, I, Emmett just said one, that the other day. One of them is on this call here with us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, yeah, pretty poor. But um, so really kind of ad stuff was ever up ever so slightly or kind of flat, which I mean, considering that they saw a drop last quarter, that is an improvement. Um, but keeping the boat afloat really is cloud revenue, which climbed 28% year over year. So I guess that's the benefit of holding a gigantic company like Google that's really diversified internally. You know, the, the ad revenue goes out the window, but it's fine. The cloud revenue will keep you steady. So um, that was a great, great little quarter for them. Not so bad. Okay, so that's kind of a ad industry wrap up. Oh, it's a pity we didn't get Trade Desk in, but they're not reporting for another week and a half. So we can come maybe, back. yeah, we might check in for a big deal or no big deal in a couple of weeks. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay, um, if you like listening to us, you're going to love reading from us. We're delivering to your inbox one of the most unique products on the market, and it is completely free. So no one else is covering the markets we've covered with Charging and Fearless, where we deliver to you a new weekly stock pitch that could be from Amsterdam, Tokyo, Paris, or probably somewhere in between. So that's a completely free stock pitch. Every week, you'll have it read in 30 seconds flat, and we can almost guarantee most of these companies are going to be brand new to you, which is where you get an edge. So sign up now in the show notes for this episode. Okay, big deal or no big deal. Emmett, I have one for you here, and I'm really going to need some explaining, and I'm glad you have a physics degree for this. <laughs> uh, so a team in Korea claims to have built the first ever room temperature superconductor. Big deal or no big deal? Yeah, so a team of physicists affiliated with a whole pile of institutions all around South Korea, as you said, have claimed to have created what is effectively, Mike, the golden grail of physics and chemical pursuits. And it is basically room temperature, ambient pressure, superconducting material. So what's that you have asked? And basically, scientists around the world have been trying for 
ever, like forever, at least for a century, to find a type of material that conducts electricity without resistance because discovery of such material would revolutionize the electricity business or the distribution of electricity because electricity no longer would be lost to heat dissipation um, as it moves through power lines and goes long distances and also very, very short distances too, like at a microscopic level, uh, if we had a superconductive material at room temperature, um, it would also mean that you know, the microprocessors that we have on all of our devices uh, would not get hot and heat dissipation is a huge problem in devices. And think of a laptop, if you've ever had a laptop, that's getting a bit hot in your lap and then the yeah. fan kicks in and it's a bit the loud. Fan, the fan and, sounds like it's about to take off. <laughs> yeah, so immediate benefit is we don't have to listen to the fan anymore. Believe it or not, there's even more benefits. But look, just to get nerdy for a second, but before I tell you if it's a dealer and not a big deal. Um, in the two papers, the research team described this material, which they're calling LK99, and they describe how it was created. And they said it was made um, with a solid state reaction between um, a couple of materials. And I can't remember which one. One was copper phosphide. Um, I can't remember what the other one was. But they basically got two materials, squashed them together with a solid state reaction. And they say that this mixture... Uh, is a dark grey superconductive material and there's videos online of it um, levitating or partially levitating um, and they said in this paper that the measured samples of LK99 um, that the electricity when applied to it had a sensitivity that fell to almost zero and they claimed in testing that magnetism when it comes to magnetism it exhibited what's known as the Messner effect which is another test of superconductivity these guys are alchemists they're after coming out and saying this this collect collection of thinkers and doers that they've discovered something that truly will change the world um and as i said the the, the test sample um was only partially levitating and the saying that was because there was impurities in the material now here's the thing the work has not been peer reviewed so we're all going to stay calm. All the all the listeners of Stock Club are not going to go out and riot and turn over cars. You hear me, everyone? Like, let's all stay calm for a minute. Um. So the whole point is that the 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 papers generated by the research team has generated almost as much excitement and skepticism in the science community as each other. And um, because over the years, there's been a, a lot of um instances of researchers saying that they'd found a room temperature ambient pressure superconductor and all of them have failed to live up to their claims and and these researchers um on this particular effort have responded to the skepticism by saying uh just go out do it yourself uh, we've told you how to go and, and mix up the chemicals in a nice beaker and and press them together um so anyway if their claims turn out to be true uh the team in korea will have made one of the biggest breakthroughs in physics and science history there will be a revolutionary change in the entire world and these guys will get nobel medals this is as big a thing this is nearly hearing somebody invented a time machine um so it might turn out to be one of the biggest deals we ever talk about on stock club that's uh i just watched oppenheimer um isn't that like a line matt damon screams at someone what did he say? He's like, this is the most important thing in the world ever. 
<laughs> this is true. Yeah, actually, I saw the movie too. Um, that's right. Well, uh, it's true. If if we find there's ambient room temperature superconductors, everything you look at is going to change. Apart apart from the humble horse and plow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so a bit grandiose there, but we like it. Um, staying with the kind of dystopian tech measures, Amory, we're looking at the launch of Worldcoin. So this is. A cryptocurrency from Sam Altman. You'll know him as the founder of OpenAI. He does Y Combinator, um, obviously ChatGPT, all that. But he's set up a cryptocurrency which scans your eyeballs to prove you're not a robot as verification. Yeah. So that's that's pretty neato. Uh, big deal or no big deal? Yeah, it is like some real Blade Runner stuff. You know, Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford will be running around soon shooting people. Um, so WorldCoin, as you said, is founded by uh, Sam Altman. Uh, he basically, this is because he has a significant amount of anxiety around AI, which is interesting considering he like currently runs like the biggest AI company in the world. Um, but he believes that in the future, AI automation will take over so many jobs that we will need to have universal basic income because there won't be like enough jobs for humans to generate enough money to live on. Um, and so he wants to be a first mover in that space. You know, the humans need to pick up their social security check space, except, you know, the social security check comes in the form of WorldCoin, a cryptocurrency he controls, um, and you have to scan your eyeball in order to prove that you're not a robot, which is super fun. Um, this is, He's very, very nervous on top of this, in addition to like the universal basic income, to establish a way to verify personhood because of the proliferation of deep fakes and, and counterfeits. Um, and so I think that would maybe be the more interesting angle for this, is establishing that type of technology more than paying people with the cryptocurrency uh so far two million people have wandered towards the chrome orbs and looked into the thing that looks like a bowling ball um and they have been set up in cities kind of all around the world with the exception of the united states because as we know the u.s and the sec have this big scrutiny about cryptocurrency at the minute so it was a bit unclear if worldcoin was going to get any you know sec approval or was going to get thrown out or whatever so they've just not put them anywhere uh in the u.s um in exchange for your efforts if you do decide to have your eyeball scanned you will receive 25 world coins and each world coin is currently valued at about two dollars and 18 cents so 50 bucks scan your eyeball Good deal, I mean, or, good deal or no good deal? <laughs> uh, it depends. Um, the company has been criticized because they have set some of these things up in kind of developing countries where $50 is a really big deal. Um, and so you are kind of manipulating some people into scanning their eyeball and they don't really know what for. Um, it's also interesting because the crypto decentralized community doesn't love this because they're kind of like, how are you going to effectively and securely store all of this data that ensures that I'm a person? So a lot of concerns around that. So um, as of right now, not a big deal because we don't I don't see enough people signing up to this to like make it legitimate. He needs at least hundreds of millions of people. But I do think that this could just be a ploy to experiment with the concept of proof of personhood and collect mass data likely for research. And then, you know, he'll probably establish some technology around this. And in 10 years, he can effectively go and pitch it to governments or the UN or whatever to say, hey, we need to have this implemented at uh, financial offices and, and we need to use it so people can access the internet to prevent I don't know AI robbery or something like that so uh, certainly one to watch yeah it all sounds a bit murky and uh, there's actually some more parallels there with Oppenheimer where he's yeah. a bit afraid of his own invention isn't it mm. yeah, yeah. Okay. and the president tells him stop being such a big crybaby yeah. I thought that was quite interesting I wonder if that actually happened because it didn't paint who was it was it Truman which president Truman, was it Truman yeah. it's actually so he called him a crybaby scientist but he didn't say it to his face 
Oh, I see. Um, Interesting. Did you fact check this whole movie, Mike? I'm very impressed at the <laughs> level of <laughs> off the cuff Oppenheimer facts you have here. Um, yeah, so I think they were kind of shoehorning it in, uh, but apparently mm. said, get him out of my office. I, look, we won't get into that. But um, okay, that's it. That was a very dystopian and kind of grim ending to our show but we'll go with it uh <laughs> no superconductors is something we should be all delighted about so let's just take the goodness out of it come on yeah. Mike. well look <laughs> emmett I, i'd love to say i understood everything you said but i'd say i got about five percent <laughs> flying cars mike just think Fly, flying flying cars you wow. should have closed it out with superconductors equals flying cars and i would have gone with it well ter- i tell you what like railway uh, travel would be mm. so revolutionized because effectively you'd have levitating could have levitating vehicles so friction is eliminated from that particular mode of transport um and that in its own right uh makes the mind boggle of course the only resistance then would be air resistance uh but let's keep that for another podcast wow. now i like the sound of that <laughs> now we're sucking mm. diesel limit where was yeah. this pitch yes, the first time you. around Right, let me go again. It's going to be a big deal. <laughs> Let's go ahead and write. Okay, before Emma gives us another half an hour of a physics lecture, I am going to give a note from our friends and sponsors at Vodafone Business before we close out the show. So Vodafone Business has always been a reliable provider for mobile and broadband needs, but now they are so much more. They now offer a whole array of digital apps from productivity tools and security solutions to IT support and even website builders. They're no longer a telecoms provider. They're a comprehensive technology partner. They're really stepping up to help businesses grow and flourish in an increasingly digital world, offering insightful digital advice and cutting-edge solutions on top of dependable mobile network and broadband services. So if you're on a digital journey yourself, remember, Vodafone Business is there to support, guide, and empower you every step of the way. Okay, Emmett, Emery, thank you very much for joining me today, and thanks everyone for listening in. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, you can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review, share us with your friends. And yeah, that's it. Thanks for joining us today and we will talk to you next week. Mm